This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Matt Grossman and Kelly Fagel of BBYO. Matt has served as BBYO's chief executive officer since 2004 and is currently responsible for working with the organization's team professional volunteer and philanthropic leader to set BBYO's vision and direction. For more than 90 years, BBYO has provided exceptional identity enrichment and leadership development experiences for hundreds of thousands of teens and now ranks as one of the Jewish community's premier platforms for reaching and inspiring Jewish teens. Matt takes great pride in BBYO's ability to bring Jewish teens together so they can form powerful, authentic relationships with each other and with inspiring adult role models. He plays a key role in hiring the professional team who bring to life the compelling Jewish environments where teens feel pride in who they are, in control of their own destiny, and as a part of something greater than themselves. With the guidance and mentoring of BBYO's board of directors, Matt has helped grow BBYO's budget threefold, expanded membership to over 33,000 teens across the globe, while all ensuring that these systems and controls are in place to support this fast-growing infrastructure. Prior to BBYO, Matt worked for Hillel, the Foundation for Jewish Campus Life, where he played a key role in the organization's decade-long renaissance. Matt grew up in Cheshire, a small town in central Connecticut, and currently lives with his wife and children in Arlington, Virginia. Kelly Fagel is 17 years old and lives in Vernon Hills, Illinois. She is currently a senior at Vernon Hills High School and is in her fifth year of involvement in BBYO, where she serves as the 32nd International Slicha, the VP of Jewish Enrichment and Community Service. She is passionate about Jewish learning and enriching the Jewish experiences of teens around the world. Now, believe it or not, the passage that Matt and Kelly have chosen focuses around the topic of leprosy. This comes from Leviticus 14.1 to 15.33. Matt and Kelly both shared this Parsha for their bar and bat mitzvahs 32 years apart, and they found some interesting connections to the pandemic related to this Parsha around issues of isolation, connection, and giving, which I look forward to discussing today. So the passage you have chosen today is from Parsha Metzora, which I believe was both of your B'nai Mitzvah passages? Yeah, I had Tazria, and we're pretty sure Matt had Mitzvah, so they kind of go together. 32 years apart. <laughs> I mean, I, I just want to be clear. <laughs> but same Torah portion, which is part of the beauty of Judaism. That's right. Generation apart, but we're studying the same sacred text and trying to derive and new lessons from it. So I am so impressed that you chose this passage because whoever chooses the passage about skin disease? I mean, Adam and Eve, Jacob, Esau, Moses, but you chose skin disease. So I'm so eager and excited to learn about this passage from you. So tell us what happens in Leviticus 14 and why it's significant to you. Before we even jump in, I just want to make it clear that we both had the same feelings when we were assigned the passage for our bar bat mitzvahs. And we were wondering how lucky could we possibly be 
you know, given skin disease with all of the other uh, rich lessons that were up there. So coming back now and reinterpreting it and and doing it again was uh, a good learning for me and partnering up with Kelly to to see her take and hear her take on it was a pleasure. I can't wait to hear it. So Kelly, one of, well, first, Kelly, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. You are the youngest guest, not by 32 years, but by a long shot of all time. So welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. It's an honor to have you here. And uh, I'm just so delighted you're here as our by far youngest guest. So Kelly, why don't you tell us what happens in uh, Leviticus 14 and why it's significant to you? So... There's some like explanation of the ritual of like what a priest has to do to help like cleanse or like purify the person who has leprosy and like sacrifices that they have to make, whether that's like animals or anything else. So here in Leviticus 14, they talk about bringing crimson and hyssop, which kind of stood out and also a worm. So that was something interesting because hyssop is like a low growing sort of plant and a worm like obviously lives in the ground. So the part of that that stood out to me was that it's sort of like bringing humility back into this person's life, especially because usually like to contract leprosy at the time, you would have to sort of talk bad about someone or do something sort of dishonorable. So it's sort of like humbling yourself before you return to the community. But then also crimson, there were certain parts that that a person would need in the purification process that were like higher growing plants or trees and things. And I found that interesting because we all need to have humility, but there's also this element of like pride that you need and sort of like a balance between the two and not being too humble, but also not being too proud. Um, And I thought that was interesting about the sacrifices that you have to make to be a member of a community and be, I guess, pure in this sense, but also like we deserve to be proud of ourselves in certain moments and to have this confidence as well. Very interesting. So, so you're saying that what the Torah teaching is that the way out of a bad place, in this case, an illness, is to have confidence that is uh, distinguished from arrogance and is certainly nothing like false humility. It's to be properly confident. Very interesting. You know, another very interesting part of the passage, I think, is if you go to 1445, we say he shall demolish the house. It's, it's stones, it's timbers, and all the mortar of the house. So. The rabbis interpret saying, well, why do you have to demolish the house? And the answer they give, of course, this is not exactly in the text, but the text does arouse the question, why do you have to demolish the house? The answer that they give is that to find the valuables that may have been hidden there by the Canaanites who had the house previously. So in other words, even when we're in our darkest moment, even when we're in our most fearsome struggle, we'll find the blessing. And the blessing here is the hidden treasure that was literally in the house. So just think about our house. Like if there was a treasure from the former homeowner that was hidden somewhere, you probably have to demolish it to find it. That's the interpretation that even in this moment, we can find a blessing and just perhaps we'll find a treasure when we demolish the house. Yeah. Very tangible treasure in terms of that interpretation. And as we studied this passage together, we we came across a passage or a, a teaching by Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, who's a contemporary uh, Jewish scholar and Jerusalem. And he wrote about the essence of life being giving. And I'm going to quote uh, specifically right now, what is the purpose of life if not to give of oneself to others? The Metsura must live outside the community and thus cannot help others. They are limited in their ability to give of themselves in all respects. And so essentially they are not living. And I think what Kelly and I talked a lot about it in reviewing that was the fact that it's not the leprosy, the disease itself is obviously 
part of the challenge. But the isolation, the quarantine is taking away one's ability to do good. And in fact, that brings the person closer to death in a way than the leprosy, the disease itself. And obviously, we spent a lot of time talking about how that relates to quarantine and isolation, which a lot of humanity is going through right now. And, and the fact that young people around the world for really the first time in their lives are going through the same traumatic experience in a way where they're all interconnected to each other through technology and other means. And we were even thinking about if, in fact, once one recovers from all of this, once the isolation ends, is the world going to be prepared to do good? Because that's, in fact, what the passage is saying one gets back when they're done with the isolation. That's such a profound teaching, and it, it really shows that uh, I suppose what he's saying is that to live means to give. And if you can't give, you can't really live. And that's the ultimate tragedy, is the depriving this sufferant, at least temporarily, of the ability to give. Yeah, for sure. And the fact that isolation prevents one from being able to give. Right. And that, that's one thing that the technology in this quarantine doesn't rob us of, or the technology provides us with. I mean, there are so many people who are genuinely shut in and really have nobody around. And at the very least, we have the ability to reach out to them. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely made it easier. I know I've like plenty of adults have have mentioned that like if this had happened in their time, things would be totally different. Like, and I think that it's allowed for a lot of creativity in ways that we didn't really think about before, especially like in BBYO, we saw it happen and we saw people come back and start programming in a way that we had never seen ever or even thought of. And, you know, we found some really amazing aspects of being isolated that have like caused for new projects and new platforms and new things within that organization. And also just like being a teenager, I mean, it's hard enough, like not being able to see people, not going to school. I mean, like high school is such a pivotal experience in every person's life. And for every high schooler to be going through the same feeling of isolation is crazy. And it's not something that anyone ever thought would happen. But definitely there's been that one sort of link, which has been technology. And I think it's a blessing and a curse in a lot of different ways. Absolutely. So um, how have you experienced this period of quarantine as distinguished from how you thought you would have experienced when it started presumably in around March? I'm a senior in high school right now. So there was just so much, especially like at the end of last year, we watched all of these seniors have their graduations taken away. My oldest sister graduated from NYU and we watched it, the virtual ceremony on the couch, which was not what we were expecting at all. And of course, like there's just, I guess, normal high school experiences like homecoming and all those types of things and our prom and graduation, which we don't know are going to happen. But I mean, also there's just an element of just expecting normalcy and knowing what other people's high school, the end of their high school experience has looked like, and then seeing what the end of my high school experience is looking like and seniors around the country and the world and knowing that just whatever we had expected before kind of, I guess, taught me not to expect to experience what everyone else has because clearly we're not and you just never know what could happen. Right. Matthew, how have you seen this as a, a vehicle that encourages, inhibits, or does neither for young Jewish engagement? I think the level of connectivity that has resulted from people being isolated, ironically, is 
is extraordinary. I mean, in a way, people have to work now to connect. You can't just show up. You can't just, you know, it's not easy. You got to work for it. And that's what we're seeing young people doing. Um, in fact, Kelly this weekend led a global Shabbat program for BBYO young people around the world. In fact, yesterday at noon Eastern time, I was participating in a Havdalah service with teens from Eastern European communities as part of this global Shabbat in a way that I obviously would never have been able to participate before. And it was a deeply moving experience to watch these kids who never really met each other in person, but who were connecting online from small Jewish communities in Estonia and Latvia all over the place, but all of a sudden have found each other and have found a connection through their Judaism. Very interesting. And, you know, I think another interesting part of this passage that is instructive for all of us when we consider this time and when we consider, particularly for young people, that the times will lay ahead is where it says in uh, 1433, it says, Hashem spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when you arrive in the land of Canaan, I give you as a possession, and I will place Caesar's affliction upon a house in the land of your possession. It doesn't say I might place if such a thing will happen, perhaps. There's no qualifications or hedging here. It's you will have this in your home. In other words, that we're all going to have difficulties. We're all going to have challenges of the highest order. I mean, this is the premier affliction in the Bible. And what God is saying is it's going to come. It's not if you do something, it's going to come. It's going to come. And then the only question for us is how will you confront it? How will you respond to the challenge? Yeah, I think the portion you're referring to also speaks to going through it as a community versus going through it as an individual. You know, early in the Parsha, it's about the individual getting it, and then it moves on to speaking about a home and what it means to get the affliction in the home. And when Kelly and I were discussing that, we were talking about going through something as a community versus as an individual. Very interesting. How do you think about this passage in terms of going through it as a community and an individual? in light of your leadership at BBYO and how people went through it as a community versus how they either did or might have as an individual? One of the things that we've worked hard to do as an organization is be there for each other during this time when we're apart, during this time when we know our families are struggling, our households are struggling, our children are struggling, both teens, professionals, alumni. We are addressing this by being there for each other. In fact, we're using a quote from Job saying that the greatest light is what's motivating us in terms of the greatest light being us being together, being connected to each other, looking out for each other is kind of our, our rallying call right now. And that's, uh, that's how it's playing out organizationally. Kelly, how about you? How have you seen your friends and your colleagues in BBYO and otherwise, how have you seen their experience be different when they confront it individually or when they confront it in the kind of thick community that BBYO gives its participants? I think within BBYO, there's so many different spheres and like different levels of either involvement or whether it's teens or staff or parents or donors. Like there's just so many people involved in creating this community that there are like moments of, for example, we hold since March, we've been having like virtual Shabbat on the weekends and holding these larger community moments. And those I think have we found to be right. I mean, the first one we had was like March 20th. So we just kind of rushed right into it. We're like, our community needs this moment together right now. We have no idea what's going on. And we do know that we have this community and we have an online platform where we can make this happen. So let's just do it. And I think 
those type of moments provide a lot of healing for whoever attends them. We saw staff, Matt was on plenty of them with his kids at the beginning of quarantine. And I would go on or teens would come on with their families. And it was just sort of this big unknown and a lot of support from each other. And then also at a certain point in the day, like we're off Zoom and, you know, and there's moments where you're just you and figuring out what's going on in your life and how COVID's affecting you as an individual, which it affects everyone differently right now, whether they're a teen, whether they're really involved in BBYO or have been to just a few programs or involved staff. On all those levels, there's a sort of an aspect of like what each person is going through. And I think as a community, we've seen a lot of understanding and a lot more, I guess, empathy towards each other. And just like knowing that if you can't get this thing done, like it makes sense. Like we're all going through something difficult, even if it's not identical to the other individuals. One of the things it also did organizationally is it allowed us to break down audiences, right? Like typically we have programming for teens. We have programming for our supporters. We have programming for our professionals. And those things didn't necessarily overlap or connect to each other. But as Kelly mentioned, Shabbat became Shabbat for all of us. And we were, no matter where we fell in terms of our role with the organizations, with the organization, we were together. And that was a very beautiful, humbling thing. I mean, back to the Parsha, when you speak, uh, you know, as Kelly spoke about the humility of it all. It's a humbling experience and no one is immune from what's going on in the world right now. And by caring for each other in that way, we're kind of, you know, addressing the greatest need. Right. And it's so interesting because one of the many great, in fact, awesome things about the Torah is that it both asks and answers all the questions we're ever going to face, no matter where we live, no matter who we are, no matter when we live. And now for the first time in any of our lives, we've had quarantine. Like, I don't think any of us, Matt, you and I are around the same measure. I don't think any of us even thought about a quarantine before March. Like, I never did, except it was your Torah portion, so you probably did. <laughs> right. But that's the genius of the Torah. So when we first started hearing the word quarantine in 2020, and I don't even remember the last time I'd heard about it before March 2020, maybe never seriously, maybe I never thought about it seriously. At what point in the year did either of you, given this was your Torah portion, say quarantine? I know that. That's in the Torah. In fact, it was my Torah portion. And now I know how to at least structure my thinking around it. I, I know some way that I can begin to relate to this because I have studied this from the Torah. I mean, I hadn't, hadn't thought about my Torah portion in a while. And I can assume for Matt, it might be the same situation. Oh, come on, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> we started discussing like what we did want to talk about. And when we started bringing up like how scarily relevant Tazria and Matsura are, so right now, we also got to the topic of like people would contract leprosy or be told that they were unpure if they did something wrong or if they spoke poorly about someone. So that was a, an odd moment of reflection for me of like, well, did we all collectively do something wrong in the world to deserve whatever's happening right now? And that was interesting for me to think about. And I mean, I don't, I don't think that we did. And I don't think that this is a punishment for humanity, but I think that there's there's positives and negatives to every situation. And as a whole, the situation is pretty negative, but we've found some really meaningful, positive things within it. That's a, a fascinating point, particularly in light of 1434, where it says that God says, I will place this affliction upon your house. In other words, it's not that you did anything. You could be the best person in the world. I will place this affliction. It doesn't say I will place it if you do this or if you do that. It's, 
I will place it. You will suffer through it. So in, in that case, and there may be some rabbinic interpretations otherwise, but the text seems pretty clear here that this is not about what any of you did. I will place it. Interestingly, though, on the other side of that, and we were speaking about technology being the point of connection and making it easier to go through all of this, it is pretty clear in previous texts and a lot of commentary that this affliction, that leprosy is a punishment for Lashon Hara. And what's interesting to us, if you relate it to sort of the modern day times, like there's more hate going on, there's more information going on, more misinformation going on rather than really ever before as a result of technology. You know, so technology is the double-edged sword in all of this. And that's obviously what didn't exist back then. But in modern times now, as we have to look at this and dissect it, what's helping to cure us is also tearing us apart. Yeah, it's a profound point. If if one were to ask, in what year in human history was there the most Lashon Hurrah? Even per person, just forgetting population growth, the answer would be this year and previously last year and previously the year before that, just because you're absolutely right, because the technology has enabled the Shon Hurrah on a scale that was previously unimaginable. That's right. So somehow this Parshan, we didn't know it when we got started, but it took these two themes of affliction, of leprosy, of being alone, of connection, and also of speaking poorly. And it took us right to 2020 and, you know, brought it all together. That's, that's so interesting. Now, in terms of uh, Lashon Hara, how do you educate young people, or Kelly, how do young people educate themselves about the dangers and the immorality of Lashon Hara in an era when it is so prevalent, I mean, unimaginably prevalent, how do you instruct and execute the instruction that no matter how easy it is to do, it should never be done? Yeah, I mean, Everyone my age is so deeply connected to technology, um, whether intentional or not. There's just so many <laughs> elements of that I think like I've found for myself. And it's about sort of surrounding yourself with people who you want to engage with. And I guess that's the beauty of it is that you can unfollow someone if you're upset or, you know, there's, there's ways to cut off parts of technology or elements of social media that are going to make it worse. And I think that's something that people are learning is that you don't have to engage all the time. But also, I think a lot of people my age are learning how to speak out and how to engage respectfully, especially when they're not agreeing. And it's such a, a politically charged year, I would say. There's so much going on in, in spaces with teenagers and college students that it's a learning process. And there's definitely ups and downs. And I think a lot of it just comes from learning through experience and learning how to engage with people, even if you're upset at them or if you're angry and how to still respect other people or still show them love in different ways. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Because I know that some Orthodox communities, they have a sticker they put on a phone with like an anti Lashon Hurrah, like Lashon Hurrah. I don't know what the picture is. There's someone gossiping with like an arrow through it. And I think that's kind of a beautiful thing because it just puts it right in front of you in the place where you're likely to do it. Like, is, is there anything like that for social media? Is there any equivalent that people use? Because it's what even Ezra said. He said, so much of Judaism, I think he even said all of Jewish practice is about reminders. And so the genius of the anti-Lashon Hara sticker is it's a reminder. It's not teaching you Lashon Hara is bad. We all know that, right? It's just reminding you. But God lives in the reminders. Yeah, that's a beautiful point. And 
Look, I, I think one thing as it relates to this issue in, in BBYO is when you're a part of a community, that community has to stand for something. And when you're a member of that community, you have to know what that community stands for. So one of our core values is around being inclusive and what that truly means. And actually, one of the things we've instituted in the past couple of years is a covenant that we go over at the beginning of each immersive program of how we're going to treat each other during that time. You know, it's like sort of the next generation of the rules. So in in the covenant, what's in there? There's a lot happening in that sense. And some summer programs, a lot of the like dorms or like cabins or groups will create a Brit, which are like promises that they're making to each other, I guess, sort of rule setting, but just setting out how everyone wants to be treated throughout that experience. And we're seeing it on a lot of different levels in BBYO, I think, now too, in terms of inclusivity and learning how what that means as an organization and what that means for every teen, especially as we learn more about how people are identifying and how, how they're wanting to be treated in this space. And that comes with a lot of responsibility on BBYO as an organization. And it's it's a learning curve. And there's a lot of work being done, I would say, to to make a space where people can uphold those promises to each other and and feel comfortable in every space within BBYO. Now, Kelly, you're also, along those lines, you're the international shliach, right? Yeah, international shliach. Yeah, for, and that's a, the VP of Jewish Enrichment Community Service for BBYO. So how does Jewish Enrichment and Service compete against other activities and pursuits for people your age? Well, BBYO is pluralistic. So that sort of adds a, a layer to that where we try, I would say, to to create programming that's engaging in ways that any teen, regardless of religious affiliation, would want to be engaged, whether it's through sports or pop culture or politics, whatever it is. And then also creating this community that's only Jewish teens, no matter their level of observance. So there's definitely diversity in a lot of the programming that communities do. For example, we have some new chapters in South Africa, which the teens there are a lot more observant. So their rules on programming around Shabbat are a lot different than, say, like my chapter in Chicago, Illinois. So it's different depending on, I guess, the demographic of teens. But then there's also going with the inclusivity that we were talking about before, finding a balance between how teens are observing their Judaism or want to learn about observing their Judaism and what they're interested in as regular high school kids who want to do stupid things too. So there's sort of a, a balance between the two. Sure. So how many students are there at BBYO? There's about 35,000 teen members around the world right now, about 23,000 in North America. Wow. That's not alumni, that's current members? Current members, correct. Wow. Astonishing. Yeah, we've been fortunate to have gone through a lot of growth. And, you know, even though we're a a hundred year old organization, almost the tried and true of putting teens in charge, letting them determine what they want to do, letting them own the programs, own the activities. It's a formula that's worked for a long time and, and we stay true to it. And Kelly's the perfect example of what she and her peers pulled off this weekend with Global Shabbat just a a striking example of what young people can do when community is the mission. Right. Fantastic. Well, this has been so instructive and inspiring, which leads me to the concluding question of the rabbi's husband, which takes us from the sacred text of the Bible to uh, another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And uh, he writes in the book, he says, "Um, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. 
And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there's no such thing as a grown-up person. So Matt and Kelly, separately, in your years of involvement in um, BBYO, which obviously is a very different number of years. Matt, I believe you've been there since 2004. Kelly, I'm not sure you were born in 2004. (laughs) I was, I was. (laughs) Barely though, right? Barely. So what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Uh, I think one thing that I've learned about humankind as I've been in BBYO since my eighth grade year is that people can can chart their own path and should listen to themselves. I think that's a large thing I've learned. There's a lot of different avenues you can take in your time in BBYO, depending on when you join or the access you have to travel or the technology that you have or the people that you know. And there's a lot of empowerment within BBYO to really to find yourself and to to go on a journey of your own and learn who you are through this organization. And I know that I've been able to do that through the position I serve in now and the experiences that I've had. And I've watched other people do it in totally different ways. So I think listening to yourself has been something huge that I've I've seen and experienced myself. And I've also learned, I guess, that it takes a village. Um, I When I started BBYO, all I saw, I was in eighth grade. So all I saw were like, the seniors in my chapter running the meetings. I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, this is a fun little space. And then you start, you go to a regional convention, you see like these adults who you've never seen before. And those are the staff who booked the hotel and made sure that everyone has a room and are taking care of you for the weekend. And then you go to international convention and you see celebrities there and like security guards and just so many people who bring this one organization together to make things happen. And Yes, it's a teen-led organization, but in order to make it one, there has to be support from a bunch of different directions. That's such a profound lesson is that everything is much more complex, much more difficult than it appears on the surface. Yeah, for sure. You get your mail in the morning. How many steps went into the process of getting the mail from the person who delivered it? An impossibly large number of steps. And yet we just open the mail. Hopefully the vaccine will be that easy. We just get the vaccine. Matt, it's, it's a very interesting example because we're seeing how difficult in real time the vaccine is. If it wasn't the biggest deal in the culture at the moment, we'd be like, like the flu vaccine. You never really think like, how did it get here? But now because it's such a big deal that everyone knows it got approved on Friday, the distribution starting either today or tomorrow. It's like now we're beginning to appreciate the complexity, how it has to be cold frozen, all, all these various factors. Now we're beginning to learn that in real time when most things we don't even think about it. Like you go to CVS in October, you get your flu vaccine. You're not like, wow, this is incredible. How many steps went into <laughs> But it's the same number. No, that's right. To answer your question, I, I think that one of the most important things I've learned is that people want to grow and they want to be a part of something bigger. And especially during the adolescent years, the desire to connect Jewishly, the desire to connect to a community, the desire to explore things outside of the umbrella that parents and family provide, it's a strong feeling. And that's what young people, what adolescents are pursuing. And I think for us, the more we've just created opportunities for them to pursue, to connect, to find, to search, the better we've done as an organization. And the greatest joy for me over 17 years of working for the organization has been watching that play out for young leaders like Kelly and others who just 
every time they just seem to rise to the occasion. And, you know, it's kind of like getting that mail. You don't exactly know how it got to your doorstep, but time and again, they rise to the occasion and they're there and they're ready to take on the challenges that society is facing. And, you know, they're the great hope for me and, and for a lot of us. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, Matt and Kelly, thank you for such a fascinating discussion emanating from this uh, Torah portion of uh, Leviticus 14 and so many subjects and ending on such a message of hope. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mark. We appreciate it. It was a pleasure for us to be able to learn together. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.